Hey, good morning, everyone. My, oh, that was fun. Thank you, whoever did that back there. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Cascade. You, you saw the other one. She was just up here. Uh, and we are continuing a message series this morning in Ephesians. Uh, so as we talk through this morning, uh, just a couple of thoughts about Ephesians, the Bible, the stories we're going to be reading, all of that. Uh, we're going to be looking specifically at a section of Ephesians that deals a lot with actions, behaviors. It's Paul saying, hey, don't, you used to do these things, don't do these actions and behaviors anymore. And uh, if you've been around church, if you've been in church, uh, uh, a lot of times it's f like pastors love to preach on these sections. Uh, and it's usually kind of rooted in some, or it can elicit feelings of shame or being less than, that somehow you're wrong and bad at your very core, but we're going to fix it by telling you what not to do, and then you're going you're gonna to do great. And this morning, we're going to talk through maybe some of where that comes from. I, I don't believe that's where Paul's coming from. I don't think that that's the direction of it, but it's very likely that it can bring out some of those emotions within you. You can start to feel it in the pit of your stomach. Anytime a pastor says, hey, don't do, and then you're like, oh no, I'm there. I encourage you to sit with that, to, to feel it, to acknowledge it, to be like, yeah, this feels, I, I just got, my shoulders got tight. Uh, my stomach just dropped a little. I don't, I don't like where this is going. Uh, and you still may not like where it's going, uh, and that's okay. But just permission to sit with that, roll through it as we talk about it. So a couple of things to set the scene uh, in Ephesians as we're reading it. It's dealing with uh, Paul a person who wrote kind of a majority, not kind of, he wrote a majority of the New Testament. And so in this, it's a letter to a church in Ephesus. He is specifically writing to Gentiles, uh, which would just be the Jewish term for not us. Uh, and to that end as well in Ephesians and the sections that he's doing, it's a huge step forward for Paul. So Paul was so Jewish that he wanted to eliminate all Christians the sect that comes out of Judaism because of their belief about who Jesus is, what Jesus does, how Jesus operates in the world, that he wants to persecute them, lock them away, stone them, kill them. And then when he's writing this letter to Ephesus, he's moved to the point of saying, I actually don't even think that this movement is just for people that were Jewish and then saw Christ. I think it's actually for everybody. So he went from being so particular and exclusive that this group that thinks that Jesus operated this way, they should be shunned and excluded, to saying, actually, I think what Jesus does is that everybody's involved. I don't know very many people that have shifted their belief systems that radically. And for that reason, I think Paul's worth listening to and sitting with. What happens is a lot of times people that are revolutionary and move and operate in really incredible groundbreaking ways in their day and time become the status quo in the future, and then we tend to interpret them as such. Oh, these people are just interested in maintaining a status quo. But the reason why they've become the new status quo is because they broke the previous status quo. So we always have to recontextualize that and kind of what Paul's doing. So we're going to be reading uh, this morning in Ephesians 5. If you have a Bible app or, or something, I encourage you to read along because uh, we're not going to read every single part of it. And I think it's good for you, too, to get some more of the context and, and to see uh, what we're talking about. All right, so this is Ephesians 5. Uh, specifically, we're going to do th verses 3 through 5. 
But fornication and impurity of any kind or greed must not even be mentioned among you, as is proper among saints. Pay attention to how that feels. Entirely out of place is obscene, silly, and vulgar talk. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Be sure of this, that no fornicator or impure person or one who is greedy, that is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And so uh, the, the framing of this, which I do think is, is significant, in verses 1 through 2, it actually calls uh, people to be imitators of God, which is a, when you think of the framework of what is religion, what is faith, what is the nature of God, to say that God is not just one to be worshipped, but one to be Im- uh, imitated is a pretty revolutionary step forward. And this is all housed within the, the book of Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians, by saying that you, just by simply being, you get adopted into this family of God. That no longer are you seen as someone who knows God, is friendly as God, but are actually sons and daughters, children of God. And in the same way that you would grow up in a household and imitate the actions and behaviors of your parents, that's the same call and invitation to us. Which again, it's important to note there's a relational dynamic of how Paul is talking about God and our relationship to God. That's a massive step forward. Even if we, we grew up in, in kind of Western American evangelical Christianity as like cultural impact, and everyone's like, you gotta have a relationship with Jesus. It's a relationship, it's a relationship. So you can hear this and say, yeah, that's no big deal. But in a framework where gods are to be feared, and their anger is to be satiated, is to be dealt with so that you aren't punished, to say that you are to imitate this God, just look at the framework of what Greek and Roman gods were. You wouldn't want to imitate the Greek and Roman gods. Why? They're kind of awful. And so this nature of a God who is there to love you and you are called to imitate this God is a different understanding of what religion, of what faith, of what spirituality can be and it can look like. And so following that, be imitators of God, he lists these things. So the three things that I, I'm going to kind of pull out of this section to look at is Paul is talking about issues of sexuality. Paul's talking about langu- uh, issues of language, how you speak, and talking about greed. And so we want to kind of break down all three of those and to see what more is there. Uh, two things to get into this. When you talk about actions and behaviors, uh, holiness can be an uncomfortable word uh, for some, uh, but we kind of want to look at this. When you, when you talk about, hey, this is the way that you're acting, or this is the way that you can behave, and there's other ways to behave, uh, I think there's two largely frameworks, and they kind of more set like a spectrum of belief. You have kind of a, a holiness framework or a holier-than-thou framework. Holier-than-thou framework is one that I'm really familiar with uh, in the the church that I grew up in, kind of the culture I was a part of. It was that eliminating certain actions creates moral superiority. I grew up in a place where non-ironically you would say, don't drink, don't smoke, and don't hang out with people that do. That was, you really believe that. So it didn't really matter what you did do, as long as you didn't do these things, and depending on what kind of holiness movement you grew up in, uh, you could say, like, don't play cards, no dancing. I went to a school, a free Methodist college, and when I got there in 2002, they just started allowing dances to happen again, which is wild. It's just saying, 
you want a path to holiness, you want to be closer to God, you want to understand what it is to imitate God, don't dance or play poker. And if you're not giggling, you should, because that's insanity. That these, if you just eliminate certain things, then you will understand more of the heart of God and what it means to be and to move in the world. And I think that gets located in a holier-than-thou. The other thing about a holier-than-thou framework is the actions that you eliminate are the ones that you're usually not particularly tempted by. Does that make sense? The ones you love to talk about are the ones that aren't temptations to you because by the fact that they are not a temptation to you, you don't do them. Ergo, I'm holier than you. And it's not even particularly hard for me to not do it. So I really fixate on the things that have nothing to do with me. That dynamic is a power and control dynamic. That's not a liberation or freedom dynamic. Power and control is that I'm going to focus on the things that I'm really good at, and I'm going to hold that over the head of other folks for whom it is a reality or it is a struggle or it's been identified societally as sin. That is not the place that I believe that Paul is coming from and the reading and interpreting of Paul. And part of the reason for that is that Paul is writing this letter in the earliest stages of Christianity to deal with the greatest and imminent threats to Christianity. There's a chance when anything gets moving and gets started, it's going to be so misunderstood that it's going to crumble from within. Paul isn't writing these letters and like, I don't know, I just haven't talked to people for a while. He didn't have a blog. He wasn't trying to get out regular content. He was trying to address the imminent threats to Christianity that was just beginning. So when we reduce Paul's words to he was just talking about some stuff, not the things that could tear it all down. Now you start to reframe that someone was maybe being silly in their talk and that Paul really believed that would make the entirety of Christianity crumble from within. Probably not. Probably not. The holiness framework, and again, this is the holiness, if that is a word that doesn't work for you, that's fine, it doesn't need to, but think of it within imitators of God. If there's a God who is love, if there's a God who's creativity, is a God that is moving and inviting us that we really see personified through the life and actions of Jesus and how to be in this world, what does it look like to imitate that? That framework would say certain actions create harm to ourselves and others. So we don't, we don't go through these actions and behaviors and say, what's easy for me to do, what's hard for me to do, how do I hold this over the heads of others, but rather, are there things that I'm doing that are actively creating harm in the world? And uh, one of the reasons that's really important is that you'll see certain things become really big deals within religious communities. Don't do this. Don't do this. And you're like, what's the active harm that that action has on another individual or on our world? Because it's in the Bible. Because God said well, but that seems to fall apart with what Paul is trying to do, what God is inviting us to do. To say that there's just certain things, even if you don't understand, even if it doesn't seem to cause harm to anyone else, you, don't you just don't do those anymore, and that is how you imitate God, seems to really sell God short as to what God is interested in being and operating and doing in the world. So, let's look at them. Sexuality is the first one. Looking back over this section, something that's going to come up later that I want you to note. And it says fornication, impurity of any kind of them, or greed. Look at how they're linked. Going down, it says uh, obscene, silly, vulgar talk. Uh, 
And then it says fornicator or one who is greedy. Look at how when it talks about issues of sexuality that it's linked to greed. Uh, one of the reasons to talk about this is that in the Roman world, uh, something that we talk about a lot, the idea of sexuality and how sexuality functions and abuse of power by Caesars, by rulers of the Roman world, were used interchangeably. Especially during this early first century time is where you have the rule of uh, the, the Roman leader Caligula, whose whole thing was hosting orgies and parties uh, and folks that were there where he would take uh, a member, so a couple would come, a married couple, and he would take one of them and he would have the power to do so into the back room during the party, and then he would come back out and talk about this sexual experience and brag about it. So within this world, uh, and these are what's reported in kind of these Roman first century history books. Whether or not they happened, I, I don't know, but what is important to note is how this abusive power structure is being linked to sexuality and how Caligula was using sexuality or how other Roman leaders uh, were using sexuality. The other thing to look at is the word that's used there. Sexual immorality is pornonia, uh, which we know, pornography in other words. And this is like one of the games of telephone that we play in interpretation. We just say sexual immorality, which becomes a catch-all phrase for anything you don't do or aren't interested in. But instead, the word originally in the Greek would be disdain for another as an object of desire which you can see through the, its current use in pornography. Disdain for another individual as an object of desire. So what's so important is you can't just talk about sexuality and divorce from it uh, abusive power dynamics and structures. Those are interchangeable and linked for Paul, for the understanding of the first century and all of the ways it talks about it in the New Testament. It wasn't just talking about how you want to express yourself sexually. It's dealing with the relational uh, aspect of sexuality. And is it a term of power and control over another? Is it actually in such a way that it demonstrates disdain for the other individual? Again, this makes more sense and why Paul would be talking about this as one of the greatest threats to Christianity. If within Christianity this earliest, they understood sexuality and used sexuality as a, a tool of power and control over other people, that would make the whole thing fall apart. That if God created all people, and there's this image of God in all people, and there's to be an honor and respect that all people belong to the family of God, then you couldn't possibly understand sexuality in this way. But more often what happens is we reduce these conversations about sexuality in the New Testament to just saying, well, uh, heterosexual marriage and relationship, that's the only kind of sexual relationship that's good. Everything else is sinful and bad, which completely divorces issues of power and control over others. And you see the absurdity in this when you talk about people that are really quick to define marriage is only between a man and a woman, and then anything they do sexually is fine, but then you see something exposed in things like Chris Pratt's Instagram post from this week that seems to be expressing a kind of relationship where how another person views you and your ownership of their heart is the way that this relationship can operate. And that's fine because it's a man and a woman. In fact, I would say, and I'm not trying to impugn Chris, 
Pratt's relationship. I don't know it. It's an Instagram post. But what I am saying is it exposes a deeper cultural truth of a kind of relationship that's really more about power and control and a man's role in the relationship and a woman's role in a subservient way in the relationship. And that she would view you as the ruler or as the head of the household is really all that matters would actually be a pretty high power imbalance. And that we can see this power imbalance within heterosexual relationships. So to only follow, focus on sexual relationships that are outside of heterosexuality is to completely miss the point. And to excuse and ignore all kinds of sinful actions and behaviors that are denying the very image of God and how we see and relate to each other. And it's not as easy to do that, right? Because now you have to have nuanced conversations. Now you actually need to have relational conversations with one another, where how we see and how we treat each other matters. And it's not just about sound bites and particular ways of talking about it. Continuing on to the next one, we're going to look at language. Uh, I like a good silly joke. I love comedians. This one was hard for me. I'm like, I don't, if we're laughing, it's bad. Uh, one thing to look at, uh, here is how we kind of view language. This is from Matthew, and this is Jesus speaking. Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said of those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, if you're angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. If you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. If you say raka, you will be liable to the hell of fire. Uh, this isn't like a Christianity purity test, but how many are familiar with the word raka? You've heard that talked about in church or like quoted before. Here's what I love about that term. Uh, it's usually in biblical translations as raka. And so much of the Bible, because it's a translation, we're taking the words in their original Greek or Aramaic and we're equating them to English words. That's why you translate. But translators got to the word raka, which was a swear word in the first century, and they're like, oh, no. I don't want to pull the trigger on a swear word in the Bible. <laughs> Let's just leave that one raka, huh? And then even if you interpret it, you interpret it to the lowest common denominator, which is like, let's just put in fool. I think that pretty much captures it. When in no way did that fully capture the use of the word raka, which is why they didn't universally translate it to fool. There's this preoccupation with language that there's just certain words you can't say, and if you say them, you're bad. That's a holier-than-thou mindset. I just eliminate all these words, and then I'm good. When in fact, I think it's something deeper, and woo I almost tripped and fell, if you didn't see it. Um, I stepped on my own cord. If we look at what are the first century kind of context, what are some of the other things that are writing that might inform more of what Paul's doing? This is what we see. Uh, this is a poem by Catalyst. And this is actually from uh, an academic book. It's a translation from an academic book that was looking at the use of language and sexuality as power and domination in the first century. It says, for his right to be a pious poet, to be chaste himself. But there's no need for his little verses to be so. Another way of saying is that there could be a clear disconnect from who you are as a person and how you write and talk. And really trying to create some distance on, hey, I have a little fun as a poet, but that's not me. That's not who I am. That's just the way that I talk. Also, we have uh, Marshall says, his words are lascivious, but not harmful. I'm just having a little fun. 
And when we look at first century poetry and writing, one of the, the tools that was being utilized at the time is that you could write kind of highbrow, big, deep theological, not even theological, but kind of spiritual, philosophical ideas. And within that, you could have some kind of crude jokes or poke some fun at people, and that would be fine. Again, I think if we're framing silly language or vulgar or coarse talk in our current worldview, I would say the most relevant example right now would be Dave Chappelle's recent comedy special. Oh, but you saw Dave Chappelle do his bit on eight minutes, which was deeply philosophical and dealing with the actions and behaviors of this world. And he's a comedian, so it's okay if some of his language is transphobic. That there's a part of this thing that there's certain language or ideas that are okay as long as they come from certain people and certain positions in certain ways. Or maybe uh, another example further in the pack is like there can be locker room talk, but that doesn't impact who the person is and what they really think and how they operate in the world. I think this is much closer to what Paul is trying to talk about without silly, vulgar talk. What Paul is moving for when it comes to language is actually integrity and embodiment and linking all things together. That you don't talk about things or you don't say things that aren't a reflection of who you are, what you actually believe. It's not don't make jokes. It's not don't be silly. Again, in a holier-than-thou mindset, it's like, okay, if I just eliminate all these words from the way that I talk, then I'll be okay. Or rather, what Paul is point, calling for is that for people that are trying to follow and be imitators of God, our language should be reflections of that reality. And to that end, if our language is to be reflections of this God, then maybe it might be necessary to drop a raka here and there to confront issues of power and abuse in our culture and our world. Disconnects are a way that religious leaders or political leaders use their power to exclude and to oppress certain segments of the population that actually there some of the ways that we police language can be missing the entire point. And there is an imitation of God that's there. That I can't just go down and go through everybody's talk and say, well, if you include this word, clearly you're bad. And if you don't include all these words, then you're good. But rather, what is your language trying to communicate? And how is it a reflection of being an imitator of who God is? Last one. Let's look at greed. Uh, also, warning, we're going to get in here to one of my favorite paragraphs in the entire Bible. So let's get ready. All right. Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus in Acts, which is just the story of the earliest church. Jesus is gone. We have the disciples, Pentecost, these kinds of stories. Then it really gets into in the earliest church what happened. Acts 19 talks about Paul's trip to Ephesus. So he was there and then the letter to the Ephesians is writing back to them. So when we look at these, we kind of get some of the scene setting of what Paul would be talking about there, because he already experienced it. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Uh, if you weren't here last week, we've, we've talked about this. Earliest Christians didn't call themselves Christians. It wasn't a term that existed. They were just followers of the way, um, which is pretty cool. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers and related trades, and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. 
uh, a couple of things. Again, if you weren't here early on when we set the letter to Ephesus, in Ephesus was a huge temple to Artemis, and it was one of the original seven wonders of the world. It was massive, huge, and it became such a central part of their economy and the way that they operated that you have silversmiths like Demetrius who make their living selling shrines to Artemis. So Artemis would have been seen and worshipped as uh, the mascot, might be too light of a way to put it, but really the center part of Ephesus. And that as we worship and understand uh, Artemis is the way that we locate who we are as Ephesus, as a city in a place. Paul's coming in, and Paul originally goes to the synagogues, and they're like, get out of here. We're not doing this. We're not having you here. So Paul leaves, and he just goes to the, the central squares where people talk. And he starts talking about Christianity, starts talking about the way, who God is, how Christ operated in the world. And some people were like, oh, I don't think I need to continue to belong to this Artemis belief system anymore. And so what that meant is they stopped purchasing the silver shrines. Demetrius sees this and he's infuriated. And you see and hear how, about how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Now, here's what I think this has to do with greed and how Paul's talking about greed here. It stinks to be Demetrius in this situation. Let's be honest. If you put your whole life and activity into being a silversmith, you figured it out, you understand, hey, I've identified that in this region, this is a way to make a living. I can live off of doing this. And then people are like, oh, I don't have to do that anymore. That's a real bummer to Demetrius' living, well-being, and bottom line. But what becomes interesting is now you have to evaluate then what kind of financial system is that? If certain financial systems, if certain ways of producing in the world can only exist if people are in bondage to a certain belief system and they have to stay in it and continue contributing to it to be okay and to not be on the outside of the society or the way of being, not to go all Jeff Foxworthy on you, but you might be in a cult. You might be in an abusive power system or an abusive religious system where it requires financial penance to the system that you have to continue to pay in. And what Paul is linking this to here is that there is an aspect of deep greed here where Demetrius is not interested in what is liberation and freedom for the people that live in Ephesus. He's interested in what is liberation and freedom for him, even if it comes at the expense of someone else. It doesn't matter that you have to pay for these shrines. It matters that I have enough money for myself. And he brings together all the silversmiths. Now, I'm not trying to diminish the real pain of Demetrius' situation, but when you get that kind of anger and frustration at it, it might cause you to look at the deeper systems that are in place and what it requires to be a part of it. This is my favorite, one of my favorite paragraphs in all of the New Testament. Indulge me. This is where it gets going. He gets them all riled up. And then it says in Acts 19.22, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. I love that line. 
The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, I'm not here to tell this crowd that were shouting one thing or another. Most of them didn't even know why they were there, how to create a chant. But if I were to create a chant and I was going to commit to it for about two hours, I would make it a bit more catchy and a little briefer than great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Here's the thing. I've been to Blazers games, and you go to, here we go, Blazers, here we go, clap, clap. You give me about 45 seconds of it, and I'm like, hey, we did it, everybody. Let's take a break. <laughs> Two hours? Two hours. That's the Jungle Cruise, the whole movie, for two hours, yelling, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. I just watched it last night, two hours, nine minutes. Two hours, 120 minutes of yelling, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. And you, we just blow right through this stuff in the Bible. That's incredible. That should be your morning devotion. You should just think about the stamina it requires to yell, great as Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. Sorry, thank you for indulging me in that. The greater point here is that what Paul is seeking to address within Ephesus when it talks about issues of greed is that there are systems in place that only benefit some and come at the expense of others. And these are systems, if an understanding of who God is or who Christ is requires their dismantling, that's a good dismantling. And if the only thing that would require those systems to stay in place is the greed of some, these are bad and oppressive systems. So, when you hear this passage taught in churches, and the only takeaway is you need to give 10% of your income before taxes to this place and this building, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about at all. In fact, in some churches, and maybe even this church, if requiring and pushing a particular amount of money is necessary to give here for the system to stay intact, that actually might be the greedy system that needs to be dismantled. That actually might be the thing that is not about the liberation of all people, but is about further oppression and control of people that needs to be taken down. That's the greed that needs to be addressed. And when we look around our world today, do we see not that, oh, some people just aren't generous enough, but there's certain financial systems in place that require oppression, require some people to give more than they have so that others can be filthy rich. I think these are the issues that Paul would be writing about if he's writing a letter to the church in America today. I want to end here with what, what Paul ends with in this section. In Ephesians 5, 8 through 11, it says, For once you were darkness, and now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. To find out what is pleasing to the Lord, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. I think this captures the heart of Paul's writing in Ephesus and the heart of what it means to be a follower of the way or a Christian both then and in the world today. Why would we talk about sexuality? Why would we talk about language? Why would we talk about greed? Other than to say there are expressions of these things that need are necessarily shrouded in darkness so that their oppressive systems can continue to roll. And as followers of the way, as followers of God, who sees that all people belong, all people are a part of this family, those are things that we need to bring light to.
Those are systems that we need to expose and to say, if it requires darkness to function, it's not a good system. It's actually not a part of this kingdom of God. It's not something that needs to continue. And we hold into this, not so we can have some sort of moral superiority, but so we can participate in the active liberation of people around us who are being oppressed. This is the invitation of God. This is the invitation of Paul. This is the work and the embodiment of Christ in our world and Christ in our world today. And I get so fired up about it because we've taken this in religious systems and we reduced it to this morality code while completely missing the point. I'm fine with certain people being oppressed as long as it's not my people, as long as it's not my friends. And I'm actually not willing to speak out or condemn these certain systems because some of those people go to this church or are part of the system or are my friends or my family. That's not good news. That's protecting abusers. That's continuing systems of oppression. And I think when we look at the story of God, and you say that within Christ, we look around and we see brothers and sisters and siblings. Now I don't just protect people that are my family, but I look at how we're all a part of one family. And I wouldn't be okay with my brother or my sister doing something at the expense of another or brother or sister, then I shouldn't be okay with it in our world today whether it's America, whether it's your family, whether it's the church systems you're a part of. This is the kind of liberation that we can be a part of. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for the words of Paul. And God, we repent, and God, we mourn of the way that these words haven't been used for liberation. But God, these verses, these letters, these stories have been used for greater levels of oppression and exclusion. God, may we have eyes to see and ears to hear. That God, there's another way to be in this world that isn't about controlling behaviors and actions, but it's actually about liberating one another. God, may we be imitators of you not for the sake of moral superiority, but for the sake of liberation, for the sake of freedom, for the sake of seeing your kingdom come. To preach and to embody a gospel that's good news for everyone, not just some. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.